Welcome to Fable and the Verbivore. I'm Fable, Beth Stedman. And I'm the Verbivore, Laura Johnson. And this is a podcast for writers who read, readers who write, and, and everyone, everyone who, who loves, loves words. All right, today we are super excited. We have another panel discussion for you. Um, we've been having fun with these, kind of getting a couple people on the show to talk through a particular topic. So today we have River Ari and Kieran Lemoreau. <laughs> I never say it right, but there you go. That's my time. <laughs> um, and Kieran is one of my um, critique partners. And River Ari, I got to read, beta read for her recently for her Flies and Honey. And it was <laughs> fabulous, kind of romantic suspense, little mafia thing going. I loved reading it so much. There was so much just um, delightful moments in it. And her banter is fabulous. Kieran also just published her first novella. It's called Greedy. It is super steamy and fabulous and just a really fun read with one of the most creative pre- premises I've read. So both of these ladies have fabulous work that you should go check out. But we are here today to talk with them about neurodivergence and how that interacts with our creativity and all of that. Laura and I have spent the last couple episodes talking about our own journeys with that. And we thought it would be fun to have some other people on the show who have experience with that and who would talk and share that experience with us. So yay. Thanks for joining us, ladies. Thank you for having us. We normally start our conversations out kind of talking about the story of something. And so Bethany and I, um, Fable and I, two conversations ago, um, talked about our own stories um, about kind of learning about ourselves and our own neurodivergence. And I was wondering if either, each of you would be willing to share your stories of how you kind of came to understand yourself better um, through kind of that process. So I've got six kids now, and at age seven, my oldest at the time was put through a bunch of psych testing and things. I figured ADHD, you know, they would just do off-the-wall things and crazy. They'd be the ones like standing in the middle of traffic, playing with a bunny or something. (laughs) And the person who set them up for the testing asked them to test for autism. I was like, say what now? their ADHD, everything else is normal. Like everything they do, I do. And then they got diagnosed. <laughs> and now my next kid is diagnosed and they're 17 and 15. And everything that's on the diagnosis list, is exactly what I do. So I started looking into it and every available self-diagnostic in existence with any level of credibility, I am like way up there on the charts everywhere. <laughs> And now things make sense. Yay. Yes. Um, I'm I'm officially ADHD and anxiety too, just because you can get that diagnosed, you know, around the corner. But <laughs> official autism diagnosis has to wait until I get through some ginormous wait list somewhere. But yeah, that's We my- totally understand that. We, we, that was part of our discussion when we talked was that same thing. It, like both the concept of discovering our diagnosis because of your kid's diagnosis. Like that's both of Laura and my story too. And I know that's um, Kieran's story too. It's because people don't understand women (laughs) and women and autism, right? Like, and just the differences and they, there's so many stereotypes there. So we're going to talk about all of that later, but it is really hard. Like getting an official diagnosis 
is difficult as a woman because there isn't as much understanding, but then also it's expensive. Like yeah. <laughs> every time I look into it, I'm like, gosh, this is yeah. like, insurance is like, that's funny. You're not a kid. You don't get anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You survive to adulthood. You can pay the one to 3000 on your own. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, mine is, mine is very similar. Um, to rivers, although my son was younger at the time. Um, and I actually suspected it, but I have a slightly different background. So I actually have, um, I have a background in uh, music therapy and psych. So, um, I, but of course, you know, most of my training and uh, most of my education was based around the prevalent research, which is on, well, to be frank, young white males. And, you know, my son presented with several of the hallmark stereotypical things for autism. And so I, um, I reached out to the only thing available at the time, because he was so young um, here in our state, it's called birth to three services. This was right yeah, when the yeah. pandemic started. Um, and so they did virtual sessions with, which with a two-year-old was really hard, but it was the only thing we had. And then um, once he got old enough, he was accepted into our town's integrated preschool. And by that point um, I was, 99% sure he was on the spectrum. I didn't tell the preschool because I wanted their unbiased opinion. And in the, our first official meeting, they said, we want to evaluate him for autism. And I said, thank you. <laughs> um, but at that point, I still had absolutely no concept or no, I mean, I was completely blindsided when it hit me, when the realization hit me about myself. It wasn't even when I was doing all the diagnostic tests, although it, I think it was probably in the back of like my subconscious as I was doing them for him. It was actually going on a field trip and seeing him interact with his classmates and seeing how he like hung back and how he how he was trying to understand, you know, all of these social cues and everything and, and remembering my own childhood and remembering what kind of kid I was and remembering some of the stories that my mom told about me at that age and things like that. And, you know, in the car on the ride home, I, I just lost it. I, I just started crying and I was like, I, I can't believe I never realized this. And I started doing, I started researching everything I could get my hands on, which for me, luckily also included like a lot of case studies and things like that, that I was able to dig up because of my connections um, in my field. But even then, you know, the research on autism and, and ADHD in women is seriously lacking and, and even the understanding. And I, yeah. I was lucky enough that, um, like you river, I did, you know, I did every test I could get my hands on, but I was lucky. I also had a friend who was able to send me her official diagnostic tests that she had taken in the UK. Um, and I was able to take them myself. And of course you're able to score those. And when we went to get my son an official diagnosis, um, I was, the clinician was kind enough to speak to me just briefly. I told her about everything that I had gone through and everything. And, um, she kind of took me aside and like off the record was like, look, you know, you are welcome to pursue a formal diagnosis. But, um, she's like, I've, I've never met a mom with a diagnosed kid who wasn't right about themselves. Like basically like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, wow. yeah, you know, you, you can if you want, but at this That's point, it's great that like, she was willing to do that. And and it's so yeah. nice to just have that probably a gray area in terms of like ethics, sure. but it's so validating to I have someone else see her you. honesty, yeah. you know, yeah. she, she was kind of like, basically at this point, it would be a lot of money 
And mm-hmm. unless you feel like you really need it for whatever reason, then, you know, that's up to you. The only reason that I honestly feel like I would need it right now is so that in the cases, like with even some family members who are like, you're not autistic. I can yeah. be like, yeah, actually, I do know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Because there have been moments like that. And it's really hard to feel like you're not being seen. Mm. But that's about the only reason that I would pursue it at this point. And I agree. It's ridiculously expensive. How many neurotypicals are going to have a diagnosed autistic kid take every available diagnostic assessment, score really high on autistic traits on every single one? Whoops, you're actually normal. Yeah. (laughs) Well, not only that, but that that hyper focus on this <laughs> is like we're doing exactly what we are like we're, yes. you know what I mean like you know yes. my hyper focus on autism and women after I you know started having these thoughts about oh maybe that's <laughs> that's like a classic like special interest right there yeah here's my binder of 19 different autism <laughs> tests and here's the history of them and why they're all valid and every single yes. score compared to every single possible yeah. variable and wait yep Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I totally have that. I have four page list of indicators and all these documents. I had my 10 page list of. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. It was like when I got referred for ADHD testing and I lost the paperwork and the phone number. And I'm pretty sure that alone should just be the test. I've actually seen memes about that, about like, you know, like people showing up for the test, like, you know, like 10 minutes late or something and like showing up to the wrong door. And the clinician is just like, yeah, okay, you're in. <laughs> you're accepted. <laughs> yep. Uh, yes. But that's funny. Um, the ADHD thing was another one of those where like I, it hit me completely out of left field. And it was only because I had a friend who was dual di- duly diagnosed, who was actually diagnosed mm-hmm. with ADHD first. Um, and we've had a lot of conversations about how like how that mm, looks for each of us. Yeah. Cause like, I have a lot mm-hmm. more, like a lot of, a lot more of my um, presentation perhaps tends to be more about the autism things, but I also have a lot of ADHD stuff that comes into it where she has a lot more of the ADHD stuff and then the autism kind of like, so it's like how it, you know, how it all balances out and stuff. Um, It's really fascinating. But as soon yeah. as I started reading about ADHD and then I, and then I read about the different types, especially the different types they identify in women. And there's a type that's apparently considered rare where you have like all of the other types in one and that's me. And I just started laughing. I was like, <laughs> I just started laughing. You. <laughs> you know how they talk about zebras or unicorns or something? We're like, yeah, we're not any of those. We're, we're griffins. We're like, take everything and like shove it together. And like, that's what we are. Oh, so true. My son was diagnosed with ADHD first too. And, and at first I was like, oh, this is so, totally me. And then he's diagnosed with autism. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. Okay. This is me too. <laughs> yeah. And my brother, ADHD first and then autism. So it is really common. I mean, they don't always go together, but there is some, some commonalities. Common and dual diagnosis, yeah. 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 And anxiety too. Yay. Yeah. Yay. That one too. <laughs> Check. <laughs> well, because they all, they all feed into each other, especially if you talk about like ADHD and um, intrusive thoughts and all of that. And like ah. how that plays into anxiety and, oh gosh, yes. And hyperfixations with autism. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you put it all together and you have the, like the perfect storm for yeah. anxiety. Yep. <laughs> well, and these things obviously affect our whole life, you know, like they're, 
it's how our brains work. It's not something we can turn on or turn off or, or all of that. So it affects our creativity in, in ways that are both a struggle and also, um, a benefit. So I would love to just kind of maybe talk about both some of the struggles and ways that this has um, influenced your creativity, maybe in some some difficult ways, and maybe how you try to address that. And then also the benefits and the, the ways you see this um, creating positives in your work and your creativity and, and in your life as a whole. Um, I really like digging into the positives in that I've realized like that's half of my editing jam. Mm-hmm. Like you bring in hyper-focus, you know, to be able to pay attention to the same words for hours and hours and days and days, just, you know, like it's your entire life, you get pattern recognition, yeah. which really helps with like the copy editing, um, get into the detailed study of the minutia of all the body language and like the micro indicators of emotion and all these things that let you um, really dig into effective characters and realistic dialogue and body language and that just make it easier to create stories and edit stories Mm. than lots Mm. of neurotypical brains. And I forgot to mention before, but both of these ladies do editing services. And so you should absolutely check them out. Um, I know they have kind of different specialties probably or, or all of that, but I think you're absolutely right. That ability to to focus and for pattern recognition and characters too, what you're saying, like your characters are fabulous. Like they do just jump off the page and I can totally see how your the the study that you've done and the the work that you've done to put into that comes off and it pays off in your work. Thanks. Yeah. There's also been a bunch of interesting studies on mirror neurons, which are the ones in your brain that physically like they are, you know, biologically, chemically, um, pick up on the micro expressions around you and um, recreate that emotion in your brain. And really, really old studies tried to say that autistics probably had less. And then newer studies started to say that we actually have more activity in the brain yeah. when that shows up. But of course, being the spectrum, you might actually have some with less and some with more. But yeah, yeah that evidence that for at least some people on the spectrum, the emotions of those around them, you know, physical yeah. empathy exists in the brain where they feel what's being expressed around them and that comes yeah. into play too i have a friend who calls me a sponge because i just constantly like take in all of the emotion yeah. around me and yet like i find it's really easy for me to pick up on it and i pick up on more than maybe other people but i can't always tell like interpret it it's really difficult yes yeah, like why my oldest works. says we can pick up the cues but we don't know what to do with them and yes. that, that that's it really yeah i can see the emotions and the social things happening but i don't know what i'm supposed to do with all of this information yes. <laughs> except in the stories because then i can just sit there and think about it and then you know make them do what i want them to do and i don't have to deal with yeah. other people's ideas that i don't know what they're going to say <laughs> I think that processing piece is really, um, I think it's one of the things that I would consider a strength, although in real life, um, it can be really irritating. Um, I don't always process well in the moment, especially when emotions are really high. But I think when I'm writing, especially if I have time to think through a situation and think through a scene and think through the emotions in the scene and, you know, that ability to, um, to almost like play out different scenarios in your head and figure out, you know, if this happens, then this happens, if this happens and this happens and go through all of those, just like I would do with real life, of course can be 
really annoying at times or really stressful. But when you're talking about stories, it can be really helpful because then you can explore all of that before you even put it on the page. Um, And you can really, you can really kind of get down to like the depths of, of what needs to happen in a scene. I was wondering um, if you could talk about something that you, um, you wish people better understood about being neurodivergent or even looking at stereotypes that are out there that you wish um, that could be challenged or um, anything um, connected with that. Besides the fact that if one more person thinks that Sheldon from the Big Bang Theory is autism, (laughs) I'm going to cry. (laughs) So I I actually, this is something that I discussed um, in a presentation that I just gave. And a couple of the things that came up. So the thing about Sheldon, uh, that, you know, that pervasive stereotype that they're all young white males, right? Um, And that they're all brilliant. Like all, mm-hmm. all neurodivergence, yes. all autistics are brilliant um, or have this, you know, a special ability or something. Um, that was one of the stereotypes that we talked about. Another one was a really interesting discussion about that movie um, that came out about Temple Grandin. Mm-hmm. And oh, the yeah. idea, um, this is maybe a term you have heard or maybe haven't heard, but the term inspiration porn. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Yeah. Yeah. That like her story is not is her story is inspiring, not because of what she brought to the world, which was amazing, but Mm. because of what she brought to the world in spite of her disability. Mm. Um, So this this notion um, that people are watching this film and it makes them feel better about what they could potentially do, because look what she did. Exactly, exactly. And so that we kind of delved into that a little bit in my presentation. It was came up with a really interesting discussion. But the idea that it's, yeah, the idea that it's all like a struggle and that it's all, and that all of these characteristics and presentations and all of these things are, we so often see them so exaggerated, right? When, especially mm-hmm. when you see it in portrayals in the media or even in books, honestly. You know, it's all of these things are super obvious. They're all super exaggerated, often, unfortunately, for comic effect. Mm, (laughs) Sheldon Cooper. Um, And this idea that um, that everybody is going to look like that. Mm. And no, you know, absolutely not. Not to mention, you know, the whole aspect of, you know, how women and girls learn to mask and camouflage all of this at a very young age because of the really high expectations on girls, this, you know, the societal expectations of social interaction and everything. Um, And so, so many people look at you and they're like, you're not autistic. And I'm like, you have no idea what I go through every single day to look, I'm sorry, but to look like you. Yeah. They're at least starting now to get some more positive and realistic representations in media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like my favorite recent ones in books are, you know, two wrongs make a right. Yes. I'm probably going to mess yes. up the last name. Chloe Leith. Chloe Leith, yeah. 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 The, the main character is openly autistic and just perfect. And just not in that she's perfect, but the, the representation is perfect. It's realistic. It's um, sympathetic, empathetic. It's got all the little details. It's not heavy handed at all. It, it, it is an autistic character. And Chloe herself is neurodivergent, right? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, she is. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's what I thought. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so it's pretty really, really well. And then even in this one's a silly one, but you know, I've seen it a bunch with the kids, the new Shira. If you haven't seen it, has a character called Entrapta, who mm. is autistic icon. Um, <laughs> you know, he is um a savant, but not done in a stereotypical way at all. And, you know, very, very kind of complex, nuanced, awesome. Just she's like my kids' autistic hero that they go for whenever they talk about, you know, someone who's autistic in media like them, they adore her. So Yeah, it's so important for that to get that broad spectrum because I mean it is a spectrum and there's so much diversity in there and I I love that we are starting to see that in media and I think that's also what I love about both of your work because you both have characters that have all kinds of variety of things going on and you're writing from a place of of understanding that personally and we need that we need more more people sharing their own stories and sharing stories that they understand yeah definitely Kind of like, you know, when you're talking about the own voices movement and there have been so many questions about like, well, can I write a character who, you know, is a different race than me or a different religion or a different, you know, orientation or, and it's that same idea of like, yes, please include those characters, right? Include those diverse casts, but don't write to the experience of Mm -hmm. being that Mm -hmm. person if you can't speak to it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's, you know, it's, it's that same idea here. Like, yes, please include those people, but please, please, if you are not neurodivergent, please don't speak to the experience of what it's actually like. Yeah. And please get your sensitivity readers if you don't actually have experience with this to make sure just like we do with all of the other characters that we write that we don't fully understand, we get our readers to make sure that we're tra- we're at least trying to, you know, do right by whatever we're writing, whomever yeah. we're writing. Yeah, ask your friendly neighborhood autistic, right? (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty of us out there. Lots of us who will read for you. That's such a great point about sensitivity readers because it's something that I think when it's an experience that we don't understand, that's that's what we should do is be going to the people who have experienced it and say, here, this is my interpretation. What do you think? What is your own approach to writing those kinds of characters? Have you been intentional about putting um, neurodiverse characters in your work? Did it just kind of happen because that's part of your experience and world? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, what's that like for you? For me, at least with Flies, it just happened Mm -hmm. um, because I did. Flies started as just like this dump of just, you know, (laughs) Flies was the first draft of basically like my trauma dump of (laughs) so many things and now you know it's been rewritten like 10 times and it's become something completely different but that one just had the diversity just naturally reflected um just but without official intent it just kind of naturally fell out on the page um the ones i'm working on now there's a lot more choice and intent and a lot more explicitly neurodivergent characters instead of just neurodivergent coded characters Mm as I'm getting more confident in my writing and as the the landscape's opening up a little more to be more accepting of that. So I'm no longer terrified that having an openly autistic character, openly selected mutism character, things like that will get it automatically dumped out of the slush pile. I'm kind of the same way, River. Um, The first autistic character that I wrote was not intentional. (laughs) I was gonna say by accident, but it it wasn't intentional. And that's Mira in my... um, my main work in progress, the guardian. And I started writing that before, um, 
all of this happened. Hmm. So, uh, but it was actually rather interesting because the very first developmental editor that I had work on it actually asked me after she had read it. I had that. autistic. I had a beta reader (laughs) say that about one of my characters too. And I was like, yeah, no, she's just the most like me. (laughs) Yes. Well, and that, that was my response. I was like, I, I, no, but, um, she's a lot like, she's yeah she's the most like me character that I had ever written and then after everything started falling into place I thought back to that conversation and it was was one of those light bulb moments (laughs) (laughs) and now uh, yeah I'm I agree with River I am now more intentional about it the Pride and Prejudice retelling that I have on the back burner at the moment the male character uh, is ADHD but a slightly different presentation of ADHD than we normally see in males, which I think mm-hmm. is really important. Um, and I'm super excited for that one. And then actually with um, the Lust and Lore series that I'm working on right now, the book I'm working on right now, one of the main characters, even though it's fantasy and it's, you know, it's not contemporary fantasy. It's definitely, you know, not a world unlike ours, but um, one of the main characters is neurodivergent, which I think will be really interesting to see in a story like that, but I'm really excited for mm-hmm. it. So. Oh, it's just, it's just listening to all this and like noting the, the the ADHD popping up there. Um, how many novels, works in progress are each of us actively working on in some form right now? I've got five. <laughs> I have eight. <laughs> or <Six. laughs> all right, I've got five. <laughs> yep. How many times have we heard the advice? to like not have multiple projects and, you know, to keep in one lane and all of this stuff. And I have to say, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, it doesn't work for me. And until mm-hmm. I had, until I figured all this stuff out about myself, I tried really hard. I tried to do what everybody said was the way you were supposed to do it. And it doesn't work for me. It doesn't. <laughs> it it actually, I would go yeah. so far as to say it actually stifles my creativity to try to do that. Yeah, writer's block is much harder to find when you have five completely different projects at different stages. You just ping pong to whichever one is the sparkle of the day. Not only that, but a lot of times if you work on one, it fixes something in the other. So I'm like, I to me, it's beneficial to have all of these different things. I mean, yes, does it mean that, that maybe I'm working slower on all of them? Well, yeah, but that works for me. So. Yeah, and they do get finished. It's not like yeah. start three chapters and then switch. And, you know, yeah. it's not a lack of finishing. They're just all actively at different stages where they keep moving forward. Right. Yeah. A lot of them. <laughs> I love what you said, River, about that sparkle. Like, I think that's been one of the biggest things for me to realize is to follow that, like to follow where my energy is and what thing is I'm motivated at at the time mm-hmm. and to lean into that hyper-focus because I do always have a bunch of projects going, but there's usually one on any given day. There's one that will like with a little sparkle, it'll be like, Oh, this is what I'm into right now. Or I'm really excited about this piece of this one. Um, and then I'll like hyper-focus on it for like a week and then it changes and because it's not, we're not always in the same mood or place. And, and I think I used to feel some guilt about that. Exactly what you were saying, Kate, that need to like, finish one thing first. And I'm really learning to just lean into that shift and change and that ebb and flow in my creative um, energy and in my creative uh, sparkle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you get it, if you, I mean, if you really want to get into the science behind it, I mean, our brains 
process and dopamine and mm-hmm. need dopamine differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, yeah. that's like the really simplistic way of saying it, but you know, you know, um, and so, yeah, why not play to that strength? If that's, what's moving you to work on it right now, then use it for heaven's sake. I mean, don't, yeah, don't tell yourself, oh, I can't work on that project because that's not what I'm supposed to be working on right now. Like if that's motivating you right now, then yeah, that's a strength and use it. I mean, I, some of you know that I wrote greedy in a series of like, I mean, it was probably a matter of like two weeks I drafted it. It's a novella, so it is shorter, but still I had a really high anxiety at the time. I needed a distraction. Mm -hmm. I needed something to absolutely basically hijack my thoughts. And I leaned into it and I used it and it worked. I don't think I would have been able to do it without all of the things that make me, me. (laughs) Yeah. Apart from meds, nothing has been as good for my anxiety as writing and reading. <laughs> it's the only yes. thing that will distract me enough yes. to like cut that circuit yes. <laughs> when it gets going. Writing and walking outside, especially in the woods, mm-hmm. and then writing some more and then thinking about writing. And then... Yep. Absolutely. I totally agree that, you know, we were talking about River, you were talking about like things that are strengths. And I think that that ability to hyper-focus plus the special interests and the hyper-fixations, if you throw that all together and then you know, just put it all together and you put writing into it and, you know, how even the, you know, any writer is of course going to focus on their characters and everything. But I think the ability to hold all of that in your head and have all of that in your head and have all those different tabs open <laughs> throughout yes. the day while you're managing everything else. I mean, I, I think it is a strength. I love that. And I, I love even just Realizing that all, not all the rules are for you. Like realizing that as you understand yourself better, you can have new rules. You can have new ones that are like, no, this is the way I function. Mm-hmm. Are there any other things like that that you're like, as you've learned about yourself, have been really helpful for you to realize that the way you work, your process is different and that it kind of frees you up to allow you to work differently? Or any particular writing rules you've thrown out yeah. as you've learned more about yourself. So like, I know a lot of people talk about writing like messy first drafts or like just getting it down and getting the story down and stuff like that. And I have a really overly healthy dose of perfectionism thrown in with everything. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, <laughs> even though it sometimes means that I draft slower, I can't write messy first drafts. I can't, I just, I have a really hard time. I, I can't not think about language and how the words flow and the rhythm of it all and how it all fits and, and all of the billion things and showing, don't telling. And like, I I can't not think about all of that as I'm drafting. I just, I can't turn it off. Mm. And so I've just kind of given up on turning it off and I just work the way that I work. And so far it works for me. And I ended up going the exact opposite because I I get that the word paralysis, you know, every (laughs) single word and every phrase has to be perfect. But with how much that it felt like that was hampering me, I ended up kind of setting up so far to the opposite that I convinced myself it was okay in that I zero draft, like 7K total zero draft, where all I'm doing is dropping into the heads of the characters and letting them go it's just dialogue with some action tags to just get the bones because I was spending so much time on my pros and then I get halfway through and 
a character would have run off the rails or, you know, a, a plot would have changed. And so I, I worked for like six months straight to let my brain let go enough to zero draft because then it's so messy that it's like almost like I don't register it as writing. Yeah. It's dialogue and asterisks and slashes and action tags. And it's basically, I just treat it like an extended outline. And then we can go into the absolute paralysis of word choice, right? I have like 10 different phrasings listed for this sentence because it has to be perfect. Uh, and then, then I have to go back through and, and choose, you know, and spend like half an hour looking at that one sentence. But <laughs> or like delayed on the subject of outlining, it's funny because I'm in most aspects of my life, I'm a really organized person, like almost like over-organized. Um, but I I have a really hard time with outlining. And I realized that the reason, which is very strange for me, is that I have a really hard time organizing thoughts on page like that, um, mm -hmm. despite the fact that I am actually better spoken in, <laughs> in written word than I am. But I discovered that one of the best things for me when I'm at those beginning stages is to call somebody and literally talk it through and I process much better that way I my brain works better that way and then after that I can get it all down and get everything down that we talked about but if I try to just sit there and do it myself something about my my brain just doesn't want to do that I will I will get distracted I will get frustrated I will get which is very bizarre to me but I and so I've just accepted that you know I'm I'm not one of those people who can sit down and like bang out an outline because I'll get myself lost. <laughs> I love that because I I have problems with that too, even like ordering of things. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's a great way of doing it. Yeah, I, I really need, I need somebody else there to be like, but what if this? And what if, but if you do this, this is going to happen. And it's not that I can't think of all of those things myself, but I think I get myself lost. Mm, and yeah. I need I need somebody to like keep me from going down all the rabbit holes <laughs> and like keep my ADHD part of my brain like in line like okay now what <laughs> luckily you know I have somebody that is really good at that with me the one I'm drafting right now Siren Song that's literally what I did I we were on the phone for about two hours just you know tossing out back and forth ideas and then at the end I sat down and I wrote it all down and I sent it to her and she's like perfect sometimes you just need a sounding board like I I love that, that it's a tool at our disposal that we don't often, you know, talk about employing that sometimes just getting it out of your head through your mouth, sometimes it just can bring it together and having someone who knows, who knows story on the other end of that can mm -hmm. help us make sense. I, I love that. It's so good to yeah. figure out what works for you because um, it's going to be different for every person. And that's why these writing rules and things mm -hmm. just don't always apply and we need to take them with a very large grain of salt. Um, That's why I always hesitate, like a little bit of a slam perhaps on some of the stuff that I've seen in the writing community, but a lot of the posts I saw, especially when the community was like first really like gaining traction was, you know, about, about a lot of these, you know, do's and don'ts. And it really rubbed mm -hmm. me the wrong way because it's like, not everybody is going to work like that. And, and putting it out as an absolute like that is it's discouraging and it's kind of dangerous because you're encouraging people to think that there's only one right rate, one right way to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. So I, for a long time, I hesitated to even write posts like that because I was like, I don't want people to think that I'm saying that this is the only way to do it. 
Mm-hmm. And now if I do write posts like that, I try to be very clear that this is my experience. This is what mm-hmm. works for me. I am sharing because I think that maybe somebody else might feel the same, but if you don't, that's okay. Yeah. Of course, you can analyze and unpack that too as like the people pleaser in me, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Like for a long time, like whenever people would ask for your piece of writing advice, mine is just always ignore everyone's writing advice. <laughs> and maybe read your word out and maybe read your work out loud. So close, you know. <laughs> There's so much value in that. I, I think that advice server in, 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 in giving someone the permission to throw out the advice. <laughs> I think especially for us, I don't know, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have this like authority thing or this, like, I need to follow the rules. If there is a rule then I'm mm-hmm. going to follow it. Yeah. Um, and it gets really hard <laughs> when that rule doesn't work with you. And it's really great to have that permission and to have someone say like, this is not a rule. It's just, a suggestion or an idea or something that works yeah. for some people. I think yeah, I think you, that you, piece is so important. And I think that that's something that neurodivergents struggle a lot more with that idea with like the rules and authority and things like that. And, you know, we're writers, we know how much words matter, right? Mm-hmm. And yet that distinction you just said, Fable, between a rule and a suggestion, that's such a huge mm. distinction. Like it's something that I've even noticed, like when I talk to my, you know, how I talk to my son and stuff, you know, the words that I use mm. matter to him. And we internalize the rule so much that we were talking earlier about feeling like we shouldn't work on two projects at a time or three because that's not what we're supposed to like. It's our book in our house on our laptop that we're inventing <laughs> out of our heads. And yet we're all like, they're expecting us to do only one at a time because we have so <laughs> of the the rigid societal structures that we just have to follow because it's the rules and you know the what we're expected to do to get along and then one big part of this is looking at the why and kind of dismantling all of those internal walls we've built for ourselves well i think because the world feels so overwhelming and confusing like those rules are really comforting in a lot of ways and so i like that structure i like having someone tell me what to do sometimes and it's both freeing and sometimes a little terrifying to realize that those rules are just suggestions. The The freedom comes, I think, in being able to then figure out your own process. But I think sometimes for myself, I'm learning that it's really helpful for me to make my own rules or to set my own yeah. boundaries or give myself my own structure because I still need that. But it, when it comes from me, it's so much more authentic and it's so much more useful and helpful for me. I think some of that permission to throw the rules away and create that then absolves you of the feeling the guilt of not following the rules. Like it, it yeah. kind of, and there's a, a whole lot of, yes, exactly. I'm realizing Maybe a good that. time to throw in re- rejection sensitive dysphoria. Yeah. Uh, yes. If we don't Absolutely. do it perfectly and do it right, then they won't love us. And then the world will end it. Yes. Uh, River, you're in the quarry trenches right now. How do you deal with that? Or is there a way that you have kind of found that's been helpful as you're dealing with those rejections? Because that's just such a big part of the process. I looked at the statistics, realized that so many of the agents have, you know, one to 2,000 queries a month Mm -hmm. and sign one to four people a year. And 
they, since they work on commission, they're not getting paid for any of that. So it's all in their spare time. So I basically went in and decided that I'm just going to expect everything to be a no at this point. I will consider any request as a win, but I'm just going to expect it to be a no because as far as a sheer numbers game, yeah, almost everything will be a no. And I'm just going to keep throwing spaghetti at the proverbial wall until eventually something sticks. I, my expectations are met when it's like a cool thanks, but no. And, you know, I just keep on writing my stuff and going and, you know, occasionally yeah. there will be like an inbox surprise or something and then I'll celebrate, but I'm not just looking at the numbers helps the logic. Yeah. The evidence is that, you know, most of these books that they're these thousand plus queries a month that they're rejecting, a lot of them are probably really well-written amazing books. I've seen a lot of the books being rejected right now that it's not about the writing. It's, it's way too luck and timing based to be a reflection on me. I set that up way before I started querying. So yes. that's, that mindset is so important. And I agree. Looking at those numbers helped me a lot too. I also, I, I've only queried once, but when I did, I kind of told myself my goal isn't to get an agent because I'm probably not going to, but my goal is going to be a hundred no's and yeah. then I can feel yeah. like I succeeded if I get a hundred no's and yeah. maybe there'll be a surprise in there, but you know, like, I don't know, just that reframing, I think is really important. Yeah, I forgot I set up but like rewards for 25, 50, and 100 rejections too when I started. I love that. Yes. <laughs> what were the rewards, if you don't mind sharing? <laughs> oh, I've got them all typed up. I don't remember. I queried for a while, and then I realized there were some structural issues, which I pulled it for, which is why it was back in beta reading, where Beth got it. And then after Beth's comments, I redid the other problematic chunk. Thank you. So now it's finally like ready and been back in the trenches for like a month so yeah um it'll take another four months for the rejections to roll in for this round (laughs) (laughs) is there any anything you'd want to say to other writers any advice you'd want to give um both for writers in general or for Mm -hmm. other neurodivergent writers I'd say um I one of my mantras forever with this entire venture has been whatever works and not only recognizing the changeability of everything within the creative process, but literally honoring and acknowledging that whatever works really seriously means whatever works for that day, whatever yes. works for that. It's not just like whatever works for that book or right. I mean, every point in your life, and I, you know, this is going to sound really cliche, but it's true. I just because one method of doing something worked at one moment does not mean that it's going to work again. And that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. And I think that, I think that falls for, for everybody. <laughs> um, but especially for neurodivergence, I think, because, because of all those expectations, because of all those rules and, you know, um, especially, especially as females, I think, you know, growing up with all of the pressure of all all of, all of the pressure of all of the things, (laughs) um, just giving yourself permission to do things, however, however they're going to work at that time. As adding uh, onto all of that, because that absolutely was what I was going to say, and I have to change it, uh, (laughs) is also to just find your people, Mm. you know, Mm. like, so instead of hitting that wall of the shoulds and the what you're not, you know, find 
your connections, find, you know, your sparkle, the people who get you that make you feel seen and feel heard and feel validated and of worth and, you know, that show you how amazing you are instead of you comparing yourself to everything else that's out there, especially on social media where everything's all shined up and, you know, looks even more out of reach. Yeah. Do you have any advice for, for doing that? For like, how have you gone about finding people? Honestly, once I started posting openly about myself being autistic, they just kind of flooded in (laughs) and you would not believe the number of people after I started talking about all of this start messaging me about how they do that too. And now they've now started, like, can you send me those diagnostics that you tried? And mm-hmm. here's the scores I got. And, you know, one of us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Realizing that a lot of the people that I interact with tend to get along because we have mm-hmm. these similarities mm-hmm. in neurodivergence. And so then the light bulbs just kind of start to go off and it just sort of, gather like electrostatic yeah. little neurodivergent people <laughs> it's so true though I love that. So true. well yeah. and I I actually have a story Kate um where you posted about autistic burnout and all of a sudden the light bulb went off for me and I'm like oh well, like this experience was autistic burnout and I so I I'm an example of this what River was saying. (laughs) It's amazing how one person writing about their experience then kind of can help you unlock doors. And it's a gift. Like, as you write about what you have experienced, everyone may not experience it the same way. But by sharing those stories, you can help others kind of find and um, open doors within themselves. And I just think that's amazing. Absolutely. Thank you both for doing that, for sharing your own stories and um, both on social media where we've gotten connected with you and, and also just in the work that you're creating. I'm really grateful for it and I can't wait to see more of your work out in the world. Uh, thank you for joining us. We hope you all listening have enjoyed this and that you will leave a review if you did because that helps other people find us. And we hope you keep reading and writing and writing about all the things and your own experience, putting it out into the world.